Well, hasn't the year gone quickly? Here we are in the second Sunday of Advent already. I was standing here about a year ago, and I remember asking you all what you were looking forward to at Christmas. And I remember telling you that I was very excited about becoming a grandmother. And Max uh, duly arrived on the 12th of January this year. And I do thank God for his wonderful gift in the form of this little boy. And throughout this season of Advent, we anticipate the birth of another little boy. So our passage this morning is from Isaiah 11, and you might like to have it open in front of you so that you can follow as we go through it. And I have a title for my sermon this morning, and it is The Great Promise and the great invitation. There was a big poster up there with those very words on it. The great promise and the great invitation. So Isaiah is speaking um, this morning. Isaiah's name, for anybody who doesn't know, actually means the Lord saves. And when Isaiah was preaching in Judah, this was a constant reminder to his hero, his hearers, that it wasn't their idols or their possessions, but it was God alone who could save them. A bit of background is that Isaiah's ministry took place under four Judean kings, Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And Judah was in a state of moral decline with ungodly patterns of behavior and deeply entrenched idolatry. So God did not give Isaiah an easy task. Isaiah was sent to warn in his sermons of God's judgment. And throughout this book, he consistently delivers the message that Judah will face judgment in the form of the exile to Babylon, which in fact occurred around 200 years later in 598 BC. But this morning, in chapter 11, there is a ray of hope. We read that a shoot will come out from the stock of Jesse. In spite of Judah's sins, the promise of a saviour from the line of King David still stands. From the ruins of Judah will come the next generation of God's people, a spiritual Israel led by Jesus himself. 700 years before the birth of Christ, so think from now back into the Middle Ages, 700 years, Isaiah foretells in this passage with astonishing accuracy what the Messiah will be like and what he will do. Verse 2, we're told that The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Fast forward now 700 years to the scene when John baptizes Jesus and hear the words in Matthew 3. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. In verses 4 and 5, we're told that the Messiah will judge in righteousness, justice, and faithfulness. None of the corruption and the bribe-taking 
and the brutality and the judgments in favour of the rich and powerful, which were part of Judah's corrupt state at the time. Isaiah's hearers would have understood that very well. Fast forward 700 years and a carpenter from Nazareth is on a hillside pronouncing judgment. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. A Messiah who sees and judges the hypocrisy of the Pharisee in the temple, but has mercy on the tax collector crying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And we read that the Messiah will wear righteousness as a belt. Do you remember the image in Ephesians 6? We were looking recently at the book of Ephesians where Paul talks about the armour of God. Fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness. In short, the Messiah who is to be born in Bethlehem is in every way as we were designed to be. Courageous, gentle, compassionate, thoughtful, patient, humble, unselfish. So let's move on to the second half of our passage to verse 6 to 9. You know, prophecy has often been likened to looking at a series of hills rolling away in the distance. And verses 6 to 9 in this passage take us to a more distant hill, to the return of Jesus, when creation will be restored to how God originally intended it to be. We're not there yet. I'm not going to go to Longleat and go into the lion enclosure and lie down with the lions this afternoon. But this passage blends truth about Jesus' first coming as sin's sacrifice with his second coming when he will reign. We live in the now and the not yet. It's actually the title of a song by the gospel singer Amy Grant. And the chorus says this. No longer what we were before, but not all we will be. Tomorrow when we lock the door on all our compromising, when he appears, he'll draw us near. And we'll be changed by his glory, wrapped up in his glory. This is the new heaven and the new earth, which is set out for us at the end of the book of Revelation. So what does this passage say to me? Well, there's a great promise and a great invitation. Firstly, the great promise. You know, this passage is such a powerful reminder that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. We rejoice at Advent that the promise of a Messiah was wonderfully fulfilled in that stable at Bethlehem. A Messiah who lived a perfect life, 
died on a cross to save us, and rose again to give us the assurance through his resurrection that death is a beginning and not an end. So we can believe the other promises. The promise in Hebrews 13 verse 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. The promise in Matthew 28 verse 20, surely I am with you to the very end of the age. The great promise. And secondly, there's a great invitation. In my Bible, this passage is called the peaceful kingdom. So I'm being invited to enter the peace of God's kingdom through this period of Advent rather than becoming totally sucked into the pre-Christmas madness. Some of you might be familiar with the popular Christmas song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. It's very hard not to sing it, isn't it? But I won't inflict that on you this morning. Um, But the, the lyrics go like this. It's the most wonderful time of the year with the kids jingly belling and everyone telling you to be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's a song, isn't it, which tries to create this vision of Christmas perfection, often at odds with a much harsher reality. But for me, as a Christian, Advent can be a genuinely and deeply wonderful time. My challenge to myself and all of us is to make it truly wonderful. This week, uh, I was at the health club I go to, and um, I'd been to the gym, and I went into the adult lounge to do a little devotional on Lectio 365, which, by the way, is a fantastic app which I would recommend to you for Advent. So I popped my earbuds in and I started listening to the the daily Advent meditation and then someone opened the sliding doors into the lounge and in came the loud piped music which was being played and it was Slade. Are you hanging up your stocking on the wall? It's the time when every Santa has a ball. Two versions of Advent, Christmas as envisioned by Slade or Isaiah. This really strange little episode just reminded me that I have that choice about what I focus on during this season. So will you believe and rejoice in the promise? Will you accept the great invitation And will you intentionally choose to let the excitement of Advent touch your soul day by day, maybe with the help of the C of E online resources, appropriately called the Great Invitation? My prayer for all of us is that we will, and that it will indeed be the most wonderful time of the year. Amen.